You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're in the third week of a series in the book of Ephesians that we have called Beyond Imagination. And uh, the, the idea for this series is that we are pursuing God's unimaginable plan for His church so that He might receive much glory. God has a plan for His church that is far beyond what we typically think about when we think about church. It's so much bigger than, than what we mean when we say, I'm getting in the car and going to church. It's, it's so much bigger than, than what we might think about when we think about uh, telling somebody, I go to Oak Hill Fellowship Church or whatever church you typically go to. What God is doing in His church is proving, proving His powerful work of salvation to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is cosmic in nature, and we just want to keep remembering that uh, all throughout this series, that, that God has something so much bigger than you could possibly think about in your mind for our church, because we are part of his greater plan that spans the ages. This is something that only God can create. It's something that only he can use and it's so he gets all the credit. Who gets the credit in the church? The pastor, the elders, the ministry servants? No, the Lord, the Lord. We care a lot about in our, our culture, we care a lot about who gets the credit, don't we? Like, like if I were to preach this entire sermon and at the end you went on YouTube and you actually heard some other preacher preach the same sermon, you realize like Pastor Ben didn't write his own sermon, uh, you'd be questioning my integrity, right? A little bit, like, like you'd be like, oh, I don't know about that, Pastor Ben. Like, by the way, it's not someone else's sermon, just, just so we're clear. Um, if, if I started right now listing off all of the names of all the people who helped with this move that we have going on, you know we're moving this afternoon, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, don't let that, you got to put that away for now for the next hour, right? But if I started listening, listing off all the names of the people who helped and, and I left out your name and you, you spent a couple hours, uh, like you might be like fighting back some feelings of, well, I helped. I mean, don't I, don't I get some credit in that? And you, you, you probably be working on that in your heart. I understand. I give you the benefit of the doubt there, but, but we care a lot about who gets the credit, don't we? There's something hardwired into us that wants to give credit where credit is due. That's just a, our sense of justice, right? And in some ways, that's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 1. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that we would give credit where credit is due. That we would give all, God all the praise and glory and blessing and honor for His work in saving his people, in creating the church, and in showering them with the blessings of his grace. Too often we want to take some of that credit for ourselves and our salvation to think that we play at least some role in our salvation, right? Like, like I got to do a little something, don't I? That we maybe think that we're somehow smarter than those unbelievers 
because we somehow knew better to follow Jesus. We somehow think we're more spiritually perceptive or holy than others, and that's why we chose to follow Jesus. If we think that God somehow knew we would make good Christians, like we're God's greatest gift to his kingdom, right? Or that we'd have strong enough faith, and that's why he looked down the corridors of time and, and chose us as his people. Sometimes I've heard professing believers answer the question like, how do you know that you are saved? And they'll say something like this. They'll point to their own performance and say something like, well, I try to be a good person. And I, I go to church regularly, whatever that means. But the point of Ephesians 1, and really the point of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we could not save ourselves. We would not save ourselves. We would not turn to God, but God came to us. God did it for us. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory for our salvation and the work that he does in his church. Today we're picking up part two of our study in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. We're running with the same big idea that we had last week, so just to remind you of that, or if you weren't here, our big idea for the week is this. Give God glory by looking beyond what is seen to the unimaginable blessings that we have in Christ. Give God glory by looking beyond what is seen to the unimaginable blessings that we have in Christ. God has done an extraordinary work that spans all of human history to redeem a people for himself so that he can shower them with grace because when God pours out his grace, his praise multiplies as far as his grace extends. And that is limitless. And so let's read this whole passage again when we, that we started studying last Sunday. I'm going to recap last week's sermon briefly, and then we'll get into some of the new material. So uh, pick up your Bibles and look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We want you to have a Bible in your hands, looking at it for yourself. This is God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, you'll hopefully remember that Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one big, long sentence in the original Greek. 
and that the translators have done us a, a big favor in breaking that up into some smaller chunks, putting some punctuation marks in there for us. But, but it's as if Paul gets so caught up in what he is writing that he forgets to take a breath. Like as Paul wrote, or maybe even as he dictated this and somebody else wrote it down for him, I believe Paul's mind and his heart are so captivated with the idea of what he's writing about that this is an incomprehensible fact that our God of glory would choose to bless a people with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. That, that is the whole main point of these verses. It's worship. It's worship. Not Debate about theology, not fill your head up, worship. Everybody say worship. Worship, that's right. That we would live, not just speak, but live to the praise of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of the work that he accomplished on our behalf. And that God would be blessed, that he would be praised for the way that he has blessed us in Christ. And so verse 3 lays out the main idea of that big long sentence, and then verses 4 to 14 begin to explain what those spiritual blessings are and, together, how we come to receive them. Last week we talked a lot more about that main idea and verse 3, and then we covered point 1. Praise the Father for the blessing of gracious election. That's what we covered in verses 4 to 6. Paul reveals that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He doesn't debate or defend or apologize for that idea at all. He, he just simply states it right out. He, he just states the fact that God is the one who chose us, which means that God gets the credit and the praise for the very idea of salvation. And Paul gives us the purpose of God's choosing that, that we would be a, a people who are holy and blameless before him. Both positionally as God sees us in Christ and then practically as we follow him and live out of our identity in Christ. Now, I went into a much more thorough explanation of all of that last week. And so if you were here, I, we don't have time to re-preach last week's sermon. That's why it's a two-part sermon, right? And so go back to the website and listen to that if you need to. And if you have questions about that and you're like, I just, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this, well, you're probably in good company, but I'd be happy to dialogue about those things. Uh, but Paul is just, he's clear. He, God chose his people. And, and not only did he choose, but he also sovereignly ordained and ordered time and space so that his choice would come to pass. Paul says that he predestined us. That's the word that we use. It means that God foreordained before the foundation of the world. He, he determined how he would work all things together for his glory and for the good of those who loved him and were called according to his purpose. What God is doing in sovereignly ordering all of human history is making sure that those he chose actually become his people. And just like he chose with a purpose, he also predestined with a purpose. Paul says that God's people were predestined 
to adoption as sons. So we mentioned that this idea of adoption as sons is not about the gender of those whom he predestined. Both men and women together were predestined to adoption as sons because in Roman culture, the firstborn son was the one who got the inheritance. Now, the inheritance of the firstborn of all creation goes to Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1. And because we are in Christ, then we get to partake in his inheritance that belongs to him. It almost feels scandalous to say that. Like, we get to partake in all of the inheritance that belongs to the Son of God. It's beyond me. But this theme of inheritance is going to come up again and again two more times as Paul talks about the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. And the point is that God, in his gracious blessing, is sharing Christ's inheritance with all those who are in The inheritance first belongs to the eternal Son of God, and then we get to enjoy it in Him. And so Paul transitions from the work of the Father. He, he then makes sure to remind us that all of this work is to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That, that to the praise of His glory, some form of that is, is, is helping us realize that there's a transition point now uh, in, in the person whom he's talking about but let's not rush past uh, that last phrase with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God the Father has blessed us because of the work of his beloved son. So yesterday I watched two of my sons play soccer and my heart was brimming with joy when I watched them perform well because it just seemed like they were just doing something for which they were created to do. Parents, you know the experience, right? But my joy in them was not dependent on their performance of them doing better than others. It, like, I, I was happy with Asher just going the right way. He's four, right? My, my joy was dependent on them being beloved sons. Their performance brings me joy because I love them. Now, I wasn't brimming with joy at all the other kids in the field. I was delighting in my sons. And the same is true when, when my third son plays archery and does things like that, right? God has only one begotten son who is called beloved. Right? At the baptism and at the transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son. And then what? In whom I am well pleased in whom I am well pleased, and because we are in the Son. He is well pleased with us based on the Son's person and work. Therefore, he pours out innumerable blessings on us. Isn't that amazing? And it's that particular work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, to which Paul turns his attention in verses 7 to 12. So look with me down at verses 7 to 12. We're getting into new material now. In him, that is in the beloved, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which 
He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So I'm reading these verses over and over again for us so that they would become more familiar to us because it's easy to get lost in the long sentence, isn't it, right? And so here's the point that Paul is making, bottom line, praise the Son for the blessing of gracious redemption. Praise the Son for the blessing of gracious redemption. In order to be found in Christ and in order for God to adopt us as sons in Christ, Christ had to redeem us with his blood. Redemption means to purchase or to ransom. So that word ransom makes us go right to what? Kidnapping, right? And you pay a ransom for somebody who was kidnapped so that they can be set free, so they can be released. In in the Bible, uh, redemption or ransom is often connected to the idea of slavery. Uh, A price is paid and the slave goes free. The scriptures are clear that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to the law. Our so-called free will isn't really all that free, it turns out. Apart from God's intervening work, we always do what feels natural to our flesh. We always do what is earthbound, what what breaks God's law. We call that sin. Here here Paul uses another word for sin. He uses the word trespass. Now you understand that word, right? Trespass. You're walking on someone else's property. And so sin is trespassing on God's property on God's territory that is called glory. Sin is trying to take some of His glory land for ourselves. And in our trespasses, we are either looking inward to our own achievements or outward to the rest of His creation as the source of our identity and hope so that we would experience glory, and that glory can only be found in Christ. In our sin, we are addicted to the glory of anything other than God. And as a result, we have become slaves to sin and enemies of God. And the only price that is big enough to grant us freedom from that is the death of a perfect sacrifice. Death is is separation from the life and blessings that are found in God. That's what we're talking about with death. And that's the price that we owe for our trespasses. It is infinitely high because we, in our sin, have trespassed against an infinitely holy and perfect God. And there's only one who has enough perfection in his bank account to cover the cost of our sin. And that is God himself. But because God cannot die and the cost of sin is death, which involves the shedding of blood, God had to become man. And that's exactly what he planned to do from before the foundations of the earth. 
God the Son took on flesh. He became the perfect God-man. He died on a cross. His body was broken and His blood was shed to pay the price for our redemption. Verse 7 again, in Him we have redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses. You have to understand, the forgiveness requires redemption. God cannot just overlook sin. Forgiveness is never just overlooking sin. Forgiveness is accepting that the cost of our sin has been paid by the blood of Jesus. That's how we know that the unimaginable blessing of redemption and forgiveness is actually real. Because Jesus shed real blood to secure it. It's a historical, verifiable, physical, tangible fact. And his resurrection proves that the payment was accepted. It is in Christ and only in Christ that redemption can be accomplished and forgiveness can be granted. And if you are not in Christ, if you are not united to him through faith, if you do not trust that he is your only Savior and Lord, that he is the only way to a right relationship with God, then you are rejecting the only redemption price for your sin and your trespasses cannot be forgiven because God cannot overlook them. If we try to earn our salvation, we only serve to trespass more on the work that Christ has done and we try to rob him of the credit and glory that only he deserves. See why works-based salvation is so offensive? Because it's robbing Christ of glory. That's why we must not think that we can pay that redemption price on our own. The redemption price is not that you would try harder to be a good person. The redemption price is not going to church. The redemption price is not giving your money to a good cause. The redemption price is not getting involved in your community and volunteerism. The redemption price is not being a part of a Christian family. The redemption price is not nodding your head in agreement with the preacher says on Sunday mornings. The redemption price is only the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are not in Christ, if He has not purchased you out of slavery to sin and changed your heart and reoriented your entire life, then all of your efforts to be good are just adding to the trespass. The redemption price is the blood of Jesus. That is God's territory, not our own. And that is so that he gets all the credit. Notice Paul says that his redemption and forgiveness are according to the riches of his grace. Grace, by definition, cannot be earned. It is unmerited, unearnable favor. The minute we try to earn it is the minute we fail to receive it because grace means that God gets the credit. And I love what the way that Paul says it. He says that the redemption and forgiveness are according to the riches of his grace, which he, what's the word? Lavished. Lavished upon us. I love that word. In other words, 
It means he removed all of the boundaries that would restrain any of his grace toward us. So imagine standing on the dry side of Hoover Dam, and this big wall is holding back all of these waters and just letting a little bit through. And because of the work of Christ, God says, release the flood. Of course, that would kill you. This is where life is, right? All right, how about this one? Imagine a bank vault. <laughs> Imagine a bank vault with a whole pile of gold coins on the other side, right? But the, the vault is blocking you from all of that blessing. And only Christ has the combination. And he enters it in and opens the vault door and all of this gold comes rushing out at you and you're swimming in it like Scrooge McDuck. Now let me be clear, that's figurative language, right? So we're talking about spiritual heavenly blessings. This is why it's impossible to, to really illustrate, right? We're not talking about God promising physical health and wealth, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. We're talking about the wealth of heaven, the currency of heaven, which is grace. And God is not stingy in the giving out of his grace. He lavishes it upon us. I don't think we often think about God's grace like this enough in terms of him lavishing riches upon us. Like maybe we, that's because we think God's grace means that he's going to give us all the temporary blessings that we want, all of the earthly temporal things. And so we're like, well, maybe God hasn't really lavished it upon me. Or maybe it's because we think that God is stingy because we're stingy in the way that we show grace. Like someone offends me and I find it hard to give grace. And so I do it because I have to. I, I, I do it temporarily, but they better not offend me again. Our version of grace comes with limitations, doesn't it? But not God. He has removed all the limitations. He's removed all the boundaries so that it floods us. Grace is part of his glory. Grace is part of his character. It pours out of him. Grace is how God is saving his people and accomplishing his grand master plan. God lavishes grace on us so that we would know and participate in his unfolding plan for the fullness of time. Look at verses 8 and 9. He lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In Christ's redemption of his people, his church, God is revealing his grand plan to lavish grace, his all-wise plan that is the key to our very existence. You cannot live wisely if you do not understand God's plan and his purpose that he is right now working out through the church. I hope you noticed that when I read it over and over again, he says, according to the purpose, according to the purpose, according to the purpose. By the way, that word for purpose indicates his pleasure. He's loving doing this. He's loving working out his plan. This is his purpose, and he's going to see it through. And we cannot live wisely if we don't understand his purpose. 
One of our goals in this series is that we would expand our understanding of God's plan, which according to Ephesians 3, cross-reference that, his plan is identified as the church. The church is the redeemed and forgiven people of God to whom he has made known the mystery of his will. And wise living means that we maximize our role in that plan. We spend our, our lives on what he is doing. Spending your life on anything other than that plan is, is foolishness. It's foolishness. Because here's where the plan is headed. Verse 10, God's grand plan of lavish grace is to unite all things in him that's in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So pay attention to this. This is, this is one of the places where the Bible is revealing to us the purpose of all things, the purpose of life. What is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of everything? That's something that philosophers have debated for millennia, right? Well, God tells us right here. Everything that God has predestined, everything that is going on in our world, everything that is going to happen is rushing toward this grand finale. All things in heaven and on earth restored in their right relationships in Christ. That's the goal. God's whole perfectly ordered creation that fell into chaos when Adam and Eve sinned will be put back in order when Jesus is revealed and the redeemed adopted sons of God are revealed in him. Go look up Romans 8 after the service to see that again. And in that day, when God unites all things in him, Christ will receive the inheritance that is due him. Because the unification of all things is the inheritance that was promised to Christ. Psalm 2 tells us that the inheritance of the Messiah is a people for himself from all nations. Which is now revealed as his church. As his bride. Presented as holy and blameless before him. Jews and Gentiles reconciled together, united together, and united to God in a gracious redemption. Christ will receive the inheritance of the nations. And in him we will receive an inheritance. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So get this. The church is Christ's inheritance. And because we are in him, he is our inheritance. Every blessing that belongs to him will be fully enjoyed by us for all eternity. Because we are in him, and because in him all things will be ordered and united. Eternity will be delightful for God's people because we will be experiencing the heavens and the earth as God originally created them. Free from chaos, free from the destruction of sin, and in full, properly ordered relationship with him. 
That's our inheritance. That's what we get to look forward to, church. That's what we're living now for. And in that day, he will receive all glory because he accomplished the redemption work that was the centerpiece of his sovereign plan. Paul says that we won't just praise God with our lips. Our very existence around the throne will be to the praise of his glory. We will be to the praise of his glory. This is, this is such a big view of salvation, isn't it? Like I hope your mind is just expanding with what it means to be saved in Christ. Being saved is so much more than, than getting out of hell and going to heaven. Being saved is so much more than saying you believe in Jesus and then going about your life like the rest of the world does, fulfilling your own dreams, controlling your own future, making yourself comfortable, doing your own thing. No, no, salvation, redemption is about God's plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Salvation is all about God getting the glory because he had the plan and worked it out according to his grace. And so let's just pause here and ask, ask yourself this, is that your view of salvation? Is that your view of salvation? Do you understand that Christ redeemed you by his own blood? Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians that, uh, about what our response should be to Christ's redemption. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's, that's redemption language. That's ransom language. What do we do about that? So glorify God in your body. So follow the logic. You were, you were redeemed. You were bought with a price. What is that price? The infinitely high worth of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that you are not your own. You belong to Christ, body and soul. And so what is the proper response? Glorify God in your body. Be to the praise of his glorious grace. Exist in your heart to the praise of his glorious grace and let that transform everything that you do, the way that you see everything around you because he has lavished grace on you so that you would be to the praise of his glory. So that your very existence would shout to the furthest stretches of the heavens, look at what God has done to save sinners just like me. if we view salvation in this way, a few things will become increasingly evident in our lives. Uh, first, we will be overwhelmed by the price that Jesus paid to purchase our forgiveness. The fact that we are redeemed will consume our hearts and our lives because we have just shown, been shown so much grace. So much grace. Secondly, we will become aware that we are part of God's bigger plan to unite all things to himself. The church is the first expression of the unity that God will work out in the end. We are the redeemed. We are obtaining the inheritance even now. We are the first to hope in God. Which means that, that this thing, this church, is to be the foretaste of heaven 
where unity is experienced in supernatural ways. It means we're going to have to fight our, our fleshly nature in that, right? Because like that still exists. And so it's just a foretaste. Don't worry, it gets better. But we're going to see that theme developed as we go along in Ephesians. Our common redemption through grace produces unity. Third, gratitude comes from an awareness of God's plan which results in ministry to others in the church. Third is ministry to others in the church. God is doing something unique in bringing about unity in the church, and that unity is expressed in all of the one another commands that we'll see in the second half of Ephesians. Serving one another as members of the body of Christ. It's foolish to say that you are a believer in God's plan of redemption and then sit on the sidelines of what he is doing in working out that plan of redemption. That makes no sense. It makes no sense to sit on the sidelines. And that's where the book of Ephesians goes in chapter 4 to 6. So if you don't take my word for it, just go there. God is also then doing something unique to bring about unity unity through the church with the rest of the world, in the rest of the world. Which brings us to the last response to this redemption, evangelism. It should produce in a heart in us for evangelism. That, that we would call out to the world and proclaim that the only way to get restored to the right order is through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Listen, the world is reeling from the effects of sin, wars and disasters and chaos and turmoil. If you don't know it, turn on the news sometime. And the church has the answer of how it's all going to get put back together in the end. Repent and believe in Jesus. That's the answer. And so I want to plead with you today, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you have never put all of your faith in him and trusted that he alone is Savior and Lord over all, then you are headed toward an eternity without God, which is an eternity of suffering and chaos greater than you could ever imagine. But if you turn to Jesus, you will become part of his inheritance. And you will share in that inheritance forever. Experiencing the joy of giving him glory for all eternity. There is nothing that you could possibly do, nothing that God wants you to do to earn your salvation. You don't need to be good enough. You simply need to trust that Jesus is the only one who can redeem you from your sin. And if you have turned to faith in Christ, praise the Son for his gracious redemption. Be, exist to the praise of his glorious grace. In his unimaginable grace, God the Father elected you. God the Son redeemed you. If you put your faith in him. But maybe a question remains in your heart. How do I know I won't mess it all up? Sure, we're in Christ, but is it possible to fall out? How do you know that all of this is going to work out the way that God says it will? If you aren't convinced by this point, 
Look to verse 13. Paul gives it an answer in addition to what he's already said. He said, God the Holy Spirit will preserve you. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Praise the Holy Spirit for the blessing of gracious preservation. The words at the end of verse 12, to the praise of his glory, signal the transition to the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that in him, that is in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But he adds two phrases that are are very important about when that happens. Notice when it happens. When you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him. So tell me, when do we receive the Holy Spirit? At conversion. At conversion. Why don't you say that together? When do we receive the Holy Spirit? At conversion. At conversion. It's not that we believe and then sometime later we get some second baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, no. We get all of the Holy Spirit when we believe at the moment of conversion. And here's why that's important. Because without the Holy Spirit, you won't last a day as a believer. You won't persevere without the Holy Spirit actively at work in your heart. We can't continue in the faith without the Spirit of God preserving us. But here's the good news. He gives the Holy Spirit to us at the moment of conversion. Paul uses two pictures to describe this preservation. The first is seal. The second is the guarantee. And so first, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The, the, the picture is, is like one of these wax seals that you see here on the screen. They would be melted uh, wax, and then the, the king would press his ring or, or some sort of uh, seal into it, press his mark into the wax. It's like maybe today when you get an envelope and it says tamper evidence seal on it, right? From the IRS or something like that. It meant, this is mine, and no one can open it except for the one that I approve. And God has indwelled us with the Holy Spirit so that no one, not even ourselves, can tamper with the work that he has done in us. Second, he says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So what did we say our inheritance was? Christ and the blessing of his order and authority in all things. And so the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that blessing, that down payment, like you would put on a house that you're buying or something like that. He is the the foretaste of all that is to come. He is the very personal presence of God leading us in the wisdom of God to live out the plan of God until we finally see the face of God. He is the one on whom we rely to begin experiencing that unity around Jesus that we see in the new heavens and the new earth. He's the reason why the church can be the foretaste of heaven. 
It only comes when we rely on the Holy Spirit. You can only persevere to the end in Christ with the Holy Spirit. You cannot live out the plan of God without him. God has not revealed his plan of redemption in Christ only to say, okay, now you're redeemed and forgiven. Go figure the rest out on your own and come back to me when you get it right. No, he gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. We cannot enjoy the spiritual blessings that God has secured for us in Christ in the heavenly places without the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual. We cannot grow in the unity of the kingdom that God is establishing in his church without the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord, we don't have to. Our job, according to Ephesians 5.18 then, is to simply be filled. Be filled with the Holy Spirit to seek Him in everything that we do, to yield to His conviction, to walk according to His wisdom, to hear and respond to His truth and address one another in His truth. That's what produces unity in the church, and that's when we start to experience the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, when we yield to the Holy Spirit, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And once again, just in case you forgot, He does all that to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is preserving you so that you would persevere to the end and so that in your perseverance, God would receive much glory. Praise the Spirit for his gracious preservation. How often do you realize that very God of very God is in you and with you? as a seal and a guarantee. How often do you rely upon him to carry out the plan, the part of his plan that he has for you? How much do you seek to be filled with him and actively yield to his control? We'll have a lot to learn about the Holy Spirit in the coming days, but I want you to know this. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit is in you. Come awake to that fact. Give God praise by looking beyond what is seen to the unimaginable blessings that we have in Christ. Praise the Father for the blessing of gracious election. Praise the Son for the blessing of gracious redemption. Praise the Holy Spirit for the blessing of gracious preservation. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.